Designs for Health is proud to present Understanding Epigenetics and Methylation, an online webinar with Zelda Graham on Tuesday the 21st of May 2024 at 7pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. She'll be covering how to understand the steps of methylation, how to identify and manage patients with under and over methylation issues, what tests are useful to qualify patient symptom presentation, and how to set effective treatment goals with these patients. For more information and to register, please visit the designsforhealth.com.au website. Wellness by Designs, and I'm your host, Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Today, we're chatting with Dr. Matthew J. Muir, a veterinarian, an integrative veterinarian, whose interests far surpass ordinary veterinary work. Welcome to Wellness by Designs, Matt. How are you going? Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure, sir. Now, one of your loves is to look at the microbiota, indeed the microbiome of animals that you care for, your patients. So let's first recap what's emerging in the world of the microbiome with regards to animals, given that there's a vast variety of normal microbiota in various animals you treat. Yeah, so I guess my my main focus nowadays after sort of learning a bit more over the years is not just the microbiome but the metabolome and uh, how it, it uh, goes hand in hand with the exposome, the transcriptome, it's all these ohms. But uh, I guess no, what's I'm... happening in the world uh, of, of veterinary medicine, I think I'll, I'll focus on companion animal medicine because there's just a, a, a exponential um, rate of information coming out in this field. I guess the main thing, uh, which to me, uh, coming from a more holistic naturopathic perspective, is that uh, the microbiome is is finally getting the mainstream recognition within the veterinary profession um, uh, over the last couple of years. And so certainly what we were finding originally, I guess if we talk about the gut microbiota um, it, predominantly, I think that it was initially sort of coming out that it had a role with uh, acute and chronic enteropathies and, and uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Um, but over time, over the last couple of years, it's, it's sort of extended beyond uh, the, the pr uh, primary gastrointestinal tract um, with regards to its functions. Uh, I think that um, over the last couple of years, we've seen uh, some papers, some interesting papers on the gut-brain axes, um, the gut-skin axes, uh, and also more recently looking and, and questioning the role of dysbiosis in progression of mitral valve uh, cardiac disease uh, and uh, also uh, neurodegenerative diseases like cognitive um, dysfunction syndrome, so the, I guess the equivalent of Alzheimer's in dogs. Right. Um, and so that that's really what's happening in the dog and cat world and i think the what's happening is in parallel to very active debate about what is the uh, best diet in adverted commas 
for for mm. dogs because there's a there's a high protein low carb camp uh, and then there's a, a higher carb lower protein camp uh, and really starting to look at what are the differences in the microbiota um, between the two um, and I guess the other thing that I, I touched on earlier about the gut-brain axis, uh, some really interesting work has come out across a few different papers. It's certainly early days, and uh, and I have a caveat on all of this that it's early days in veterinary medicine, even more so than human medicine. Mm. Um, but mm. there's been some some uh, peculiar microbiome layouts, uh, microbiota layouts in dogs associated with aggression. Um, with uh, phobic disorders um, and uh, and in some breeds, dare I say, that the closest, uh, this is in bull terriers, something akin to um, uh, potentially a autism-like disorder uh, syndrome, um, but it's it's really, that that's, that's pretty new. Uh, but yeah, plenty of things oh, that wow. are coming out with regards regards to the microbiome um like post uh, postbiotics are getting effect like the the uh, it's great to see that it's not quite every, everyday language but like the use of polyphenolics and certainly prebiotics is is um becoming uh, not center focused but certainly into the psyche of the conventional vets particularly internal medicine specialists so yeah some really cool things happening um and and beyond that i guess is the translational aspects that um, dogs and humans particularly have a lot of overlap with their microbiota. Um, so it, some, some, uh, and dogs particularly are increasingly validated as translational models for humans. Um, so some cool uh, insights, I think, to come there. Yeah. Okay. So there's about 30 questions going around my mind at the moment. And the first one I need to get out is um, you, you're talking about the gut brain superhighway and mm -hmm. we know for instance um certainly in mice that toxoplasmosis when they eat cat feces in goes uh, migrates to the brain knocks out the fear center makes the rat or the mouse fearless of the cat and so the cat then eats the mouse and the cycle repeats itself yeah. but none of that paradigm talks about the effect of behavior on the cat so are we seeing any of these parasites having that controlling mechanism on our pets not just cats um and also you spoke about high carb or low carb versus high protein no mention of fat particularly when we're talking about neurological mm. disorders where does fat sit in there there you go. There's well, a double whammy that's way. So, um, <laughs> let's, the fat I'll come to in a second, critically important. Yeah. Um, and But with regards to the toxoplasmosis story, I think that there's actually more evidence for that in humans with regards to risk-taking behaviours in toxoplasmosis uh, um, yeah. seropositive humans rather than fully understanding yeah. it with, with dogs. Um, I think that what we're learning slowly but surely is more about um, like glutamate GABA um, balance in the brain, you know, whether dogs are in like a hyper 
glutaminergic state, uh, how that plays into the HPA axis, um, the, certainly the pr production of neurotransmitters, serotonin and, and GABA uh, in, the, in the gut, and, and, and some of the metabolomics uh, have sort of looked at the higher high protein diets and, and certainly GABA um, uh, is, is higher in production in, in animals on a higher protein diet. Um, and certainly a lot of anecdote around dogs being uh, cool, calm and collected when they're not on a high glycemic load diet and so consequently a higher protein diet. Um, with regards to the EFAs, the omega-6 to 3 balance, and, and nowadays I'm very critically aware of the omega-6 to 3 balance plus the vitamin E to polyunsaturated fatty acid ratio, um, to me that's... that's um, uh, not, not necessarily controlled for in a lot of these studies, and certainly that's an area where I'm looking at, at, at contributing to the research um, myself. Um, but uh, I guess it's given that a lot of this research, um, you'd see that if an if a diet is higher in glycemic load, higher in carb content, generally what we find is that the omega six to three ratio is a bit off, um, and and moving more to a pro-inflammatory drive. Um, so yeah. it's not it, it, there's a lot of confounders in this research um, about you know what when you're looking at a high protein versus a, a low protein diet, or maybe more correctly like a uh, low glycemic load diet um, uh, it becomes it becomes quite tricky to to really elucidate um, the final conclusions because of, of variables like fiber um, mixed fermentable fiber EFAs and, and I guess the other thing is like omega-3 is a prebiotic um, and so it's it is it's complex and uh, I often say that the more you read about this the more it make your head spin um, but <laughs> it, I guess we just have to jump in and start having conversations around it um, and discussing the discussions because there's, there's certainly more to learn in this area yeah but um I guess the other sort of part of this though is what if part of the issue is our intervention on a dietary level would give unconscious confidence to the owner in that they're doing something good for their pet and that it will, will elicit a positive behaviour and so that in itself elicits the positive behaviour in the pet. It's kind of like the Caesar, what is it, Caesar Milan, Caesar, is that right, Caesar mm. Milan? You know the dog whisperer. Yeah, right. yeah it's um, alleged. Dog so could stuff. could yeah could could it be that part of this is actually that the owner has finally got the confidence? Yes. So transference uh, placebo, transference anxiety, um, uh, neuroticism, the, the psychos mm. what they call the psychosocial dyad between pet guardians, humans, and, and dogs is is complex and uh, fraught with um, confounders. Um, but to to sort of understand whether um, uh, if, if someone thinks that they're feeding a, a diet that's more microbiota friendly will uh, affect um, the dog, is certainly looking at some of the uh, placebo-controlled um, symbiotic or uh, uh, probiotic formulation trials, you see uh, huge um, placebo effects um, across, like looking at the decrease in vomiting by like 20% or maybe 18% in, in one of these studies in the placebo arm. Um, and so, and this is a, a guardian or owner uh, intent um, uh, um, observations, like this is a, a transference placebo. Um, hmm. But to further complicate things, 
um, we need to think, okay, what does the thought processes of the dog, particularly through vagal nerve, or um, uh, what are the thought processes doing to the microbiome because, or biota? Because we, we know that in uh, certain breeds of dogs, um, exercise, uh, like more intense exercise, um, has significant um, changes to the microbial composition. Um, so it's it, through the gut-brain axis, these things are, are probably more complex. Well, they're definitely more complex than we uh, like yeah. to simplify. Yeah, that's absolutely another true. One that, another interesting one on that is like some of the peculiarities in in animals with regards to some of the microbial layouts associated with anxiety disorders or phobic disorders um, such as one one study looked at LGG um, I'm not exactly sure which sort of substrain but they looked at LGG as it, it had an overabundance in OTUs in in uh, animals that scored higher on on uh, anxiety um, scores which is is completely different to some of the observations that we see in mice with regards to LGG's uh, anxiolytic effects. Um, mm. And so then one of the questions that I have is that, well, is that actually some form of self-medication that the, the microbiome like lifts up in response to stress? Like, is it chicken before the egg? Like, is, is the body... Um, or, or the, the microbiome itself making changes to you know, calm the body itself to support its host. Um, did you did you say that the LGG had an anxiolytic effect in dogs or that it heightened anxiety in dogs? Neither. I think there's an association, not causality, between uh, dogs that have a uh, score higher on an, uh, on an anxiety score uh, have an mm. overabundance of LGG. Could could that be simply that it's the wrong organism? Because dogs have a very very high uh, count of E. coli. They're not just they're not a hyper carnivore, but they're a you know mainly they're a carnivore. They eat plants, but um, mm. and so we're using the wrong bug. Oh, absolutely. But I think if you're looking at rodent models versus the canid model, like they're both quite metabolically mm. flexible. Um, and yeah, I mm. think that it, it, and this is where my role in clinic is is trying to, particularly in an age where as a both a professional and a global citizen, how I can personally contribute to um, like planetary health or eco health or one health. If I'm trying, I need to be thinking, okay, what's the best recommendations I can make for the patient, my animal patient in front of me with regards to their diet and, and their modifiable lifestyle factors, et cetera, and their, their general health care? How can I do that without sort of, uh, without putting the, the humans at risk, particularly through zoonotic risk? And or what can I do to try and um, also help uh, the humans in the household out by making changes to the microbiome. So, the, and where that becomes tricky, and this is sort of a slight tangent, but it, to bring it back to that question, where it becomes tricky is that uh, when you look at the differences between the microbiome um, in in dogs on different styles of diet, like you mentioned, hypercarnivore, um, so maybe a diet that's sixty percent animal protein, through to a dog that's uh, approaching a vegan diet, um, it, they they will have 
um, major differences to the microbiota um, mm. and whether or not they they feel like there's different niches and they all fulfill similar um, metabolite fun like functional roles that's still an area to be elucidated um, but yes for some dogs some bacteria will and this I think goes into the kind of pathobiont versus symbiont um, sort of way of thinking about this spectrum from like hardcore um, pathogenic virulent um, uh, microbes through to completely harmless um, uh, microbes that the, mm. things sit on that spectrum and and have to intervene with like have to sort of work with the host I mean I I used to sort of being a, a new vet think about us being biomechanics so I'm like a mechanic looking under the roof of a car then you know starting to understand ecological terrain in the microbiome okay now I'm a gardener um, and you know what what what's it akin to but nowadays I think what it's akin to is being a couples counselor um, where we're looking at how the microbiome and the host are communicating with one another where the boundaries are yeah. what are their needs what are their like what do, how do they function to help each other as a team that that's kind of where I've got to with all of this. But I mean, this this must be so confusing for you because we, when we're dealing with humans, we're dealing with people who, um, uh, we we know a human's diet, we know what we can handle, and we know what is definitely off the table. Like there's no way that we'd eat that. Whereas I'll always remember Snoopy, my dear dog who died at the beginning of last year. Um, and Snoop would bury a bone and <laughs> dig it up four or five days later, and it was manky. Like we're talking mm. slimy, grey, green, um, and he would happily munch on it with no problem at all. So is one of the dangers that we've got here is to try and humanise dogs? Absolutely, but but some dogs need humanization, or, or particularly in the short term. Um, like I would mm. expect that he would have an appropriate gastric acid secretion. Um, he would have um, an acidic hindgut. That he would have an intact mucin layer. That he wouldn't have um, a dysfunctional liver. That he couldn't cope with the LPS. Right. Or, um, so there's there's so much going on uh, under the surface um, that. Because one of the one of the thoughts is that the reason puppies chew on stinky shoes or dogs bury bones is, I think that the main reason is cacheting of food for um, use later. But there's some talk that okay, that's actually doggy kimchi. They're fermenting the bones um, yeah. and, and creating yeah. their own uh, probiotics or you know mm -hmm. observation of dogs eating uh, marsupial uh, feces or um, that sort of thing. So I think. What there's no universe, a universal one size fits all diet for a dog, but and it can change dynamically over time. Like, I think that I, I in clinic, I, I do a lot of gut rehab. Um, so I'm looking at saying, okay, well, my dog has been eating raw meaty bones for 14 and a half years, and his stomach's a tank, and I can give him food that if you smelt it, I certainly wouldn't eat it because their stomach, <laughs> their stomach is a little mini microwave it, it just you know, blasts the like the acid like it's ph1 um so you know oh, put right. your finger in a dog's stomach for if you put dipped your finger in a dog's stomach for an hour like it wouldn't be pretty when it when you pulled it out so 
Yes, there's a lot of difference between human and and this is the thing for me. Like I I, I read and follow the human literature um, as as closely as I can um, with getting appropriate levels of sleep. Um, uh, and <laughs> I look at dogs and and uh, you know if you look at the microbiome um, that's required for a predominantly plant based human. Uh, versus an, a, 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 like a more of a carnivorous lifestyle, etc. We 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 know. I think we know where we need to go um, with regards to plant based. I think that's that's very clear. Um, but in dogs and and particularly cats, it's it's very different. And and I do think that if we transplanted a, the, the the fecal microbiota, like a fecal microbiome. From a cat into a human, I suspect they would get colonic cancer from the the putrative factors and and the back like just what what's going on for a cat to digest the yeah. their, their food. Um, but it's complex right. because in, in, we now know that um, if we're looking at increasing fiber, um, it really depends on what the base diet is, like whether or not the dog's eating bones or cartilage or around bones as a as an animal based. Um, prebiotic versus what we think they need and and that we've humanized these animals into little little humans um and uh, it doesn't always it doesn't always work and in in the same way that there's a bunch of humans that have a dysbiosis you know you've said quite a few interesting things there one which i can never ever unsee and that is doggy kimchi but <laughs> but but, but Something you said earlier about um, having a, a a more vegan doggy. What? I, like I thought that dogs required a a certain percentage, a large percentage of their diet to be meat based. This is not so. Um. No, not necessarily. I think that when we're looking at the move to plant-based nutrition, um, mm. I think the main thing is we need to think about, in all of this, we need to think about sustainable agricultural reform and sustainable agriculture in uh. general. Um, uh, and because if you're looking at, and then and looking at crowding in versus crowding out um, I, and, and what's optimal off, off the back of that, because... Um, if you are using uh, grass-finished uh, beef, um, the omega-6 to 3 uh, profile of that is vastly different from CAFO, like intensively farmed beef. Um, if we're using free-range eggs, the vitamin D content is very different from um, indoor-raised eggs. So we have to, or if we're using fish, like if we're looking at a, a more ancestral diet, because of what where the planet's got to with regards to toxicants in the environment, um, some ways of feeding are no longer appropriate. So there is an argument mm. that a cleaner, more plant-based, lower glycemic load diet, more high biological grade proteins um, would be better with and, and then if we're thinking about vegans, we'll say, okay, well, or vegan dogs or plant-based, which I'm not necessarily, a fan of yet um, because I think that we haven't really worked out how dogs go from surviving to thriving on these diets. And I, I see attempts made that they're, they're often quite uh, metabolically, metabolic X 
like syndrome, I, I think a lot of the time yep. that there's just something not right with their, their hormonal balance. Um, and mm-hmm. the fact that you have, in order to get rid of the animal proteins um, and you need a certain protein requirement and an amino acid, um, essential amino acids, you crowd in a lot of high glycemic or high lectin containing foods, which don't, which are deplete zinc and there's a whole range of problems there. Um, but the other thing is to, to have a vegan dog um, in captivity, um, I think would would require using like high grade um, microalgae, DHA and EPA. Um, looking, you need to use a B12 supplement or or dirt, mm. which is uh, increasing. And going back to what I said about the doggy kimchi, uh, I think soil based probiotics is very interesting to me. Yes. So there's a yes, lot of factors. Absolutely. That yeah um, um thinking about like the the uh, sorry matt you go sorry i cut you off oh that's okay i was saying um looking at the the um particularly like studies around soil and and in in like mm. amish communities and, and things like asthma and allergy and atopic um and, and immune system um maturation and that sort of thing like i think that's that's quite interesting um and going right back to what i said at the start of this rant um is that a lot of the work i'm doing is gut rehab which is trying to be very upstream with healing and getting as balanced a microbiome as they can across the first two years of an animal's life I, I totally take your point about soil-based organisms. Um, um, I've I've heard it said in certain circles with regards to human probiotics that uh, you know, in certain circles there's a disdain of soil-based lactobacilli. So it's a lactobacillus coagulans, and I mm-hmm. don't think I think that could be further than the truth. Of course, in the same sentence, these people will talk about the old friends theory and getting out and getting dirty. Well, that's the mm. lactobacillus coagulans amongst a myriad of other organisms. Mm. Um, there was a point that you made also about um, with regards to animals and and I think it was cats, for instance. If if we transplanted a um, did a fecal transplant of a cat into a human, we'd be looking down the barrel of dire health consequences. But there is also this thing of um, that certainly dogs. Um, and I think cats are included in that, are included in this old friend's theory with regards to farm animals reducing allergies and things like that. But that's got to do with this cloud of microbes that we share rather than a bolus dose of a faecal microbial transplant. Is that correct? Yeah. Like the do we find changes where, for instance, a dog, if we have a dog, that the human will adapt to some small degree the the canine microbiota that we'll incorporate some of those into our own microbiota yeah i think there's absolutely and that there's plenty uh, plenty of speak to this um i think predominantly around asthma in children but if we're looking at the uh, i guess the technical term I think the immunologists talk about is um, emigration um, uh, of, of bacteria and sources of 
and this I think is nowadays sort of potentially referred to as ecology theory, um, where uh, the the inputs into particularly if we're talking about an infant a neonatal microbiota in a human, there's there's inputs coming from like prenatally, perinatally, um, and then from siblings, uh, extended family members, um, uh, pets, uh, definitely. Um, and I think that if we're sort of looking at saying, okay, well you know, we've got a lot to learn, but normally um, increased diversity is a good thing in the microbiome. Um, then if dogs are contributing some uh, some uh, bacteria into that into that um, mix, um, that would they're not really getting elsewhere in the household or in their environment, then I think that that is, is happening. And looking at um, particularly around food sensitization and certainly asthma, childhood asthma, um, there, there are some dysbioses in children, and obviously I'm, I'm a veterinarian, so I can't, can only speak from a sort of outsider's perspective. I'm, I'm not a, a human doctor or, or certainly not an immunologist, so certainly this is just mm. my opinion um, from looking at some of the research and presentations in this area that uh, there are some like Acomansia, Fecalibacterium, um, uh, and um, I think also what there's another one, but there's a couple of there's a couple of bacteria uh, that no. are, are often. Represent. Sorry, I think uh, bifido. I'm just wondering. Yeah, I think there's a triad of Bifidobacterium, Acomansia, and Fecalibacteria bacterium that and and maybe ruminococcus um that that dogs yes. uh, are potentially a reservoir for I, I look at dogs in the household nowadays as like uh, the modern uh, appendix um that dogs are this little reservoir of extra microbes that um that uh, in a house um that you you've lost elsewhere so um yes uh, uh, and i do think that like speaking to my point about transplanting the whole microbiome from a cat into a human, I think that's obviously never going to get care and ethics approval. Um, and and that I think <laughs> to me that's that's, that's very well. Who knows actually in the world of like looking at the the superbug uh, statistics for two thousand and fifty? Like the, I think we need to keep uh, be, be pretty open minded. Uh, but certainly, I'm not proposing that as a research paper right now. Um, but uh, the. <laughs> The um, looking uh, looking at transplanting the whole microbiome versus just um, contributing a little bit to it, I think, is a very different different thing. And um, like for me, I mean, I'm very interested in um, I guess the atopic march, um, emerging autoimmune disease, because a lot of the uh, a lot of the patients that I meet in clinic, um, being an integrated veterinarian, are cancer, refractory epilepsy, refractory autoimmune disease, serious like uh, refractory uh, IBD, um, behavioral challenges, um, these things that happen later in life. Uh, and I get clients coming to me and I have the luxury of um, doing like timeline um, uh, approach to how I think that this happened to be. And I get to re read back from a scary diagnosis right back to their infanthood. Um, and mm. increasingly after paying attention and maybe having some cognitive um, bias, like looking at the antibiotic use before year one in a dog um, and also what the mother was fed during her pregnancy and lactation. Like we, there, there is research in dogs that what the mother is fed during her lactation dictates lifetime atopic dermatitis risk in the puppies. 
Um, yeah. So to me, I know um, that the assemblage of the microbiota um, and the immunomaturation and immunonutrition of a dog, um, the appropriate T regula- uh, regulation um, and, uh, and, and developing a healthy um, uh, microbiome and an immune system, um, to me it's very clear from what I understand in dogs and then to see like read about that in humans, particularly the use of uh, like what antibiotics at certain times um, uh, of life do for humans. Like if it's between zero and six months, you'll get type one diabetes. If it's between this and that, you get um, uh, obesity later in life, you get um, uh, asthma during a certain time. I find it fascinating because this is what I see in clinic um, for dogs. And what I think is super cool through translational research and one health is that what i do for trying to improve the microbiome for my for the dogs under and cats in my care um has real world consequences for the humans in in the household mm-hmm. so i do feel um like i said as a global global citizen and a professional um i do feel indirectly i'm helping treat households by making sure that their dog's microbiome is a symbiont, a symbiont not a pathobiont and that it's yes. hopefully contributing to the whole family care yeah, absolutely. You know, what you spoke about with regards to uh, generational priming of the immune system smacks of something with regards to how LGG was used to hopefully rescue um, the atopic priming in infants um, born of atopic parents. So the issue there was that the only way it worked was if the mother took the probiotic, uh, I think, within the last trimester of pregnancy and then continued giving it to the baby after birth. If you just gave it to the baby once you've got eczema, it didn't work at all. It's really interesting how this immune priming has got to happen in utero um, for it to take effect. And that that goes into another bug, a little bit of a favourite of mine, that segmented filamentous bacteria and TH17 <laughs> yeah. priming. Enough of that. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, well, but I did sorry, want to ask about... Do, sorry. I, I actually did um, do some research into SFBs um, in dogs because I knew you have a penchant for it. So um, <laughs> so pretty nasty, okay. pretty nasty studies from the 70s about indoor versus outdoor um, uh, dogs, um, uh, certainly research that uh, I, I don't support but, um, uh, in in how cruel it was to the dogs in what they were doing. Mm. Um, but um, unfortunately, that kind of research is behind us. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, that, that's an interesting one. Uh, and looking at something like Clostridium huronis and um, uh, uh, LPS from Bacteroidetes versus uh, E. coli um, that they have different immunoregulatory effects um, on T T helper seventeen and T reg yeah. um, function. It's really interesting stuff, and you can just your mind explodes with it. Um, I did want to ask you when we you you were mentioning skin issues earlier. We've spoken about the gut brain axis, so now we have to really incorporate the gut brain skin immune metabolome axis. Um, yeah. So, what sort of adjunct therapies do you use then in clinic, given your knowledge on the importance of the microbiota? Yeah. Um, 
uh, do something about it is the first thing, um, I guess. <laughs> uh, not to be facetious, but yeah, like uh, uh, diagnose. But, but, uh, but do or, they do they vary drastically between say cats and dogs? The what like what a gut skin brain the axis, therapies uh, are, yeah for instance um yeah, the, the, um, the therapy. we spoke earlier about lgg and what about other mm-hmm. organisms like for instance um uh, saccharomyces boulardii sure uh well i think sb saccharomyces boulardii um can be used in both species and there is an evidence base for it um i think it's more about when like what would be considered subclinical versus clinical and what what you're looking for because i think um sb uh, sb effect on um secretory iga um increasing short chain fatty acid production to butyrate to feed the colonocytes and repair um uh, uh, gut gut hyperpermeability for sure for sure i think that plays a role um to 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 go back to thinking okay what does an adjunctive solution um, what what does the treatment protocol look like with my approach um, with the appropriate mm. informed consent of of the pet guardian would be saying okay well your dog's got skin problems um, but your when, when when I've asked you questions on the dog's um, or cat's um, bowel motion frequency or or flatulence or tendency to vomit or coprophagia you've given me its fussiness like you've given me a whole bunch of clues as to my suspicion of a dysbiosis um, or at least a suspicion that this diet is not working uh, for for this pet at this particular moment um, and and to me if someone comes to me and uh, either they've they throw their hands in the air and say we've tried everything with our dog's skin um, then often the diet and behaviour is, is what's lacking. And I think a lot of the time I, I routinely um, uh, provide a behavioural modification plan for um, for uh, itchiness and, and licking and uh, scratching in dogs because regardless of whether um, it was involved in the primary problem, by the time... Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, uh, by the time I generally see an animal, most vets, there will be some probable secondary self-soothing fiddle clustering um, behaviour where the dog licks the, the skin and gets some sort of attention, relief, serotonin production, um, uh, and it may not be just genuine itch anymore. But um, so what I think about is the concept of gut lining and um, and epidermal epidermal mirroring. So looking at what what inflammation is happening, like what information do I uh, inflammation do I expect to be happening at the the gut lining, and how is that manifesting in the skin? Um, I think the the big ones for me. I mean, to go back to your love of SFVs and T regulation. And tea help us uh, seventeen. Um, the medicinal mushrooms are one of my favourite things to to build into clinical practice. Like I, I think that the mushrooms, particularly in this instance, I'm thinking of Ganoderma lucidum reishi, is uh, its mm-hmm. its role as a prebiotic um, and oligosaccharide, and and uh, looking at I think some of the stuff in humans around like HMO, like the the human mater- milk um, oligosaccharides, and so, and the kind of uh, profiles of of uh, the medicinal mushrooms, I think they, there might be some overlap there. Um, but that's that's kind of one of the avenues I take. So behaviour, nutrition, uh, definitely need the appropriate EFAs, definitely 
that needs zinc. Um, you know, I might be reaching for things like L-glutamine, SB, um, it, uh, mixed fermentable dietary fibre, lowering the glycemic load so there's less um, uh, uh, diet-driven inflammation, um, the, the then looking at uh, topical um, approaches to re- like uh, changing the skin microbiome, um, it, and all of this is designed with what else is going on in the dog. Um, you know, do, they need omega, th- they need appropriate omega threes, um, assimilatable omega threes anyway for their brain health, heart health, anti-cancer effects. So a lot of the time, I'm just cleaning up the whole holistic um, health of of the house of the dog and then the other thing i guess is like the the flood damage issue i like i practice in sydney and so much flood damage so much probable mold um and and dust mite um, issues affecting dogs like dust mites is the the, the most likely offending allergen in canine atopic dermatitis um so they're, they're, that's that's i guess the things that i'm doing a lot of in clinic liver detoxing gotcha Another one. And and with regards to now I know um um uh forgive me, Ganoderma. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Common name. I've just gone blank. Reishi. L- Sorry? Uh, Reishi. Reishi. Reishi mushroom, thank you, Reishi. So with regards to uh Reishi mushroom, a little bit hard to procure as a culinary item, but shiitake mushrooms, for instance, do you do you advocate mm-hmm incorporating shiitake mushrooms cutting them up and making you know like a beef stroganoff for the dog so that you can actually have a a dietary impact there um or do you just because of dose and and um or dose uniformity certainly but because of convenience do you tend to use preformed supplements for supplements for this it, it depends on what my therapeutic goals are and the severity of the issue and how, how long I need, like, to, to get this right or what phase we're in because, I mean, I, like, I, I um, am head of product development for a whole food pet food company called Laika and one of our recipes, I have put shiitake, um, yeah, cooked shiitake in, in the, the recipe um, for the immunomodulation and skin support. Um, it needs to be cooked because the dogs can get that. I, I think it happens in humans as well, but that um, lentinan-associated dermatitis. Uh, lentinan dermatitis. Um, mm. So depends is the answer. It depends what I'm trying to achieve. I mean, if I'm thinking about, okay, well, uh, going back to your question about can we just do a, a beef um, diet with added shiitake, Yes, potentially, if it's part of the nutritional strategy that is clear and coordinated with appropriate zinc and AD, um, E, the vitamins, etc. Um, but if it's ad, mm-hmm. ad hoc, like adding shiitake to um, a diet strategy that's not fully realised, may not be exactly what the dog needs um, and certainly not for the long yeah. term. Um, something like uh, shiitake, um, reishi, um, uh, nettle leaf, powdered nettle leaf as a, I often think about, okay, what, what do I need to do to get control over this and heal the, the current um, the barrier function of the skin or deal with like a, a dog that's immune systems fatigued, get that under control for three months and then say, all right, then the longer term sustainable thing is um, de-escalating from maybe like a nutraceutical quercetin onto and like a higher grade, like a nutraceutical zinc um, and move to something like 
um, using mushrooms or nettle leaf as a, a nutritive herb as part of the longer term yep. diet strategy. So it, de- it depends, but I do I do reach for the the dual extracts um, if, or if often or so, uh, I guess the other thing is like because I do a lot of Western phytotherapy, like I'll often put um, uh, reishi tincture alongside um, some of the other uh, alterative and uh, adaptogenic herbs um, for for my skin patients. Um, so that that's in the kind of acute phase. Gotcha, gotcha. So the last question: research. Now you're you're hell bent on research. Will what research would you like to see that will give a real bang for buck in this area that we've spoken about? Mm, yeah, great question. So <laughs> um, I think that we need to catapult forward in understanding what um what a suboptimal microbiome looks like um uh, diagnose it um and uh, and have the clinical rationale in front of uh, all vets and all um pet guardians and other stakeholders to understand that uh, we need to properly validate what uh, uh what a diet can do um and particularly the diet uh, in gestation and lactation, because as as you have pointed out about looking at the that the, if you don't get the right probiotics in the third trimester, by the but you're already kind of behind and potentially unable to catch up um, with the uh, with post postnatally. Um, that we need to look at being able to thoroughly validate, publish, uh, and and um, utilize what a uh, appropriate microbiome is on uh, what the best diet for an appropriate microbiome is a, a diet that's sustainable and something that can be fed to uh, essentially the grandmother um, of a of a puppy so that over time uh, we're not seeing this this huge amount of atopic disease and inflammatory disease that we're currently seeing in dogs um, yeah. and and understand that this is this is an issue um, through EcoHealth, an issue for the planet, um, an issue for um, translational uh, health for humans. Dogs and cats share our environment. We need to look at their health as the canary in the coal mine for what environments mm. we're living in. Um, and also through through what unfortunately has happened with the pandemic, the understanding of spillover events um, and how to protect uh, against spill, like more zoonotic disease uh we need to understand that in our pets and we, um and and stop that from from uh, our pets being a reservoir for um zoonotic risks and actually have them to protect us by making mm. our microbiome better uh, so i think it needs a, a big like eco health one health focus um to to um quite efficiently validate that uh, beyond uh, and I guess in veterinary medicine, we don't have the luxury of a lot of the functional tests that you you have in on the human side. So I like I'm looking at saying, okay, well, I want to compare one diet to another, control for fiber, control for EFA balance, and actually look at this diet versus that diet with the protein to, to fat ratio of protein to um, carb ratios, and actually look at this microbiome and say this microbiome leads to um, better telomere function, um, better 
um, to help a cell balance, um, better like reduce cytokine, reduce um, insulin growth factor, um, better metabolic fitness, better mitochondrial function, and and sort of say, okay, that that research is now done because the that hasn't been properly validated yet. Yeah, there's so much to learn, but I, I'm we are very drawn to concentrating on the patient in front of us. But, Matt, I'm so impressed with the way that you think generationally um, that it's not just the mother, it's not just the parent, forgive me, um, of the offspring, but you're now looking a generation before that. And this is a big lesson that I think animal breeders um, are going to have to really look at if they want the best out of the offspring that they're going to provide for loving owners down the track. So it's really interesting how your mind works, but thank you so much for sharing some of this expertise and passion that you have with us today on Wellness by Designs. That's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So thank you, everyone, of course, for joining us as well. You'll find all of the other podcasts and the show notes for today's podcast up on the designsforhealth.com.au website. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This is Wellness by Designs. 